Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good to see all of you this morning. We're continuing our series on the family, but I got good news this morning. Whether you have a family, well, technically all of you have a family, but whether or not you have a wife, a husband, kids, that doesn't necessarily uh, mean you can't tune in today because we're talking about a topic that literally every human being deals with, and that is the topic of conflict, conflict resolution, whatever you want to call it. And I have a feeling probably some of you got in a disagreement maybe this very week, this past week. Uh, it's unlikely that we go very long without having some sort of a, 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 at least a difference of opinion. Uh, if you live with anybody else, uh, husband, wife, kids, I, I can almost guarantee it happened this week. There was at least some sort of disagreement this past week, but we all face this. We face this in our workplace. We face this everywhere we go. And there's a few things that we need to break down first before we dig into the Word of God. There's a couple of myths out there that we need to overcome. And they're really important. For instance, when I do premarital counseling, I often ask the couple things like this, you know, what kind of marriage do you want? And that's a really important question. Early is like, what are you looking for out of this whole thing? Why is it it's funny how often people get stumped by the question, why do you want to get married? Uh, well, uh, it seems like the right thing to do. I mean, the answers can be really strange sometimes, but when I ask what kind of marriage do you want, and I'll say, do you want it to be conflict-free? A lot of times people will say, yeah, that would be really great. It'd be great to have a conflict-free marriage. Well, that's, that's a fool's dream, my friend. And, and it's, not, it's not even necessarily good because if you had a conflict-free uh, marriage, it would mean that both of you or one of you is dispassionate about a lot of things. If you never fight at your house, it may be because your husband, your wife is a doormat and is not passionate about or is passionate and is unable to really come to the mat with that passion. Look, conflict could be good. It can help. In fact, there's a few myths that I want to throw at you really quick. First of all, myth number one, good relationships do not have problems. Well, (laughs) if that's true, then no one has a good relationship. No one. Uh, In fact, even our relationship with our very Savior Jesus Christ is broken on our end. I I, I fail to pray enough. I I fail to devote myself to Him. I I often hinder our relationship with my lack of activity. He never fails, but I sometimes do. That means even that relationship has a problem. The truth is better though. The truth is that good and bad relationships face the same set of problems. The difference comes in finding good resolutions. Resolution is far better than having no passion for the conflict. Myth number two, conflict is destructive to a good relationship. Well, it can be, and that's why this myth is believable. It absolutely can be, but it doesn't have to be. In fact, the truth is happiness can often be won through conflict. I mean, just thinking about the world and the wars that we fought, some wars we had to fight, and the resolution was better than what was before. Had we not done World War II, there would be even greater genocide in our world. There was good outcomes, but it, it was a conflict that took many lives. In a relationship, it's kind of like that. I, I've heard this before. Couples are often like cold porcupines trying to get warm. And the greater the closeness, the greater the chances you'll get pricked. All right, That's just the nature, but we're both in this together. We're trying to warm up, but we're both rough around the edges. 
No matter how perfect your childhood, no matter how perfect your parents were, you're coming into this relationship and you're realizing this very quickly, you're selfish. Because man is selfish. And it's like, I've said this before, but marriage is the first big pillar that has to fall where you go, you know what, we're both, we didn't realize it, but we're both incredibly selfish. And then we have kids and we go, wow, (laughs) there went all my alone time. There went all, and then you have four like me and just forget about it, you know? I don't, I don't really have a life outside of husband, father, and I'm okay with that. That's, that's the, the change I have to make. Is That's who I really am at my, at my being, is first a follower and, and, and a lover of Christ and follower of Jesus, and, but also a husband, father, disciple. These are true. Conflict could be destructive, but it also can lead us to bind together. Men kind of understand this very well. I'm not sure... Maybe some women get this too, but I've often found that when men get in a good physical fight, we often become better friends after. I know that's crazy to sound, it sounds strange, but for men, that's, that works out. I don't know that women really need to do that necessarily. I don't know if it works that way, but sometimes I just need to punch a guy in the face and it seems like it's better. Yeah. You're like, that didn't make any sense. I'm telling you, it's true. Myth number three, good relationships only happen to a fortunate few. Now, this, this is a myth that you can believe and think that to yourself, I'm not one of those fortunate few. Now, there is some truth to this. Only a few people get it right. A lot of relationships are broken. That's why we've been talking about these stats over the last few weeks. Like, about half of the marriages in our nation fail. Half. That's, that's, that's a crazy number. A, a great deal of us feel like we're failing at parenting, and we think there's only a fortunate few Maybe, maybe some of you in the room, you're not married or have, you don't have kids or nothing like that, but you just feel like you can't sustain a good friendship. Like you always seem to mess that up. And you believe this myth that good relationships are only for the fortunate. The truth is, relationships take work. And where we often fail is we get lazy or we think it's supposed to be magical. We think, oh, there's these people that just, they just make friends. They, things just work out. It's not true. Some people are easier to get along with. That's, that's true, but they all take work. <laughs> Doesn't matter how pretty you are, or how well-spoken you are, your husband, your wife, some, some friend, they're going to get pretty sick of you if you don't put anything into it, ever. Good relationships take work. They're not for the fortunate few. They're for those who are willing <laughs> to cultivate a thing. So let's dig in. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians as we will for the rest of this series. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. And we're going to dig into what Paul is talking about here to the Ephesian church. He's talking about the body of Christ. But these things apply not only to us as his church, as men and women, but also in our relationships, the the many different types of relationships we have. In Paul's letter here, he's urging them to resolve conflict by the power, specifically the power of Christ's forgiveness. That the, 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 the essence of everything we can do is inside of, of Christ's forgiving power. And we can resolve conflicts, no matter what relationship, we can do this by the power of Christ. How can we resolve it this way? Well, I believe we're going to see four really clear instructions as we dig into these. There's, there's kind of some bullet points almost as Paul unpacks this. So let's, let's read together Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. He writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. 
Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Boy, he finishes that chapter with an aha, uh, and a big one. As God and Christ forgave you. What a great word today to us. I pray that we can, by the power of Christ, really live into this. Here's what we're going to be talking about. How to resolve conflict in the power of Jesus Christ. The first thing that I see really jumping out, the first instruction is confront conflict truthfully. Confront conflict truthfully. You know, the Word of God often speaks of truth and that the truth is found in Christ Jesus. I could go to many places. Here's two excerpts. John chapter 8, Jesus says, And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He goes on in chapter 14 to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So this truth, this, this, the way that we handle conflict should be in Christ Jesus and should be honest. It should be with integrity Putting out, as he puts it here, putting away falsehood. Now, there's an interesting thing that's happening throughout the text here. And I didn't notice it until I was preaching it this week. I've preached this passage a handful of times. I've certainly read it more. This, every single one of these put-aways, let, there's a lot of lets in there. Let this be put away. Let this happen. They're all what you call in the English passive imperatives. Now, just so you remember, I'm no English scholar. Grammar was probably my worst subject. But I find that the Bible really jumps out if you think about what's underneath some of the words. They're all inspired by the Holy Spirit. So they have meaning. The, The imperative verb means it's a command. It means he's instructing us to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do this. Be Let the, the falsehood be put away. But the passive tells us that there's something inside of us doing this in us. So this is really good news as we, we look at all of these things we're going to talk about today. That our natural bent, honestly, our natural bent is falsehood. The reason is because lies often save face. If I give you the whole truth and nothing but the truth, it may, it may cause a lot of friction. It most likely will if I tell you the truth every time. If I'm honest, if I don't exaggerate something or, 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 or put it a certain way that maybe it would make your ears more likely to hear. But the truth sometimes can be sharp. And yet the passive imperative, this, every single one of these verbs that we see on the page today is Christ in us doing this in us. It's more of a, an operation of yielding. I think this is already happening in a lot of you. It's certainly happening in me. It's joke. It's kind of a joke, but Sometimes I feel like there's two different voices. You'll see the cartoon images of like an angel and a demon. That's kind of ridiculous. But in a sense, it's my flesh against my soul, against the Spirit of God in me. And I'll often think, I really should tell this person the truth. I really should just 
And certainly with salt, certainly with spice, that way it's not so sharp. Do my best to be merciful and graceful, but not to dodge it. And not in the, uh, there's other fights where sometimes I'm trying to push people's buttons. I mean, and, and I'll exaggerate facts and, and I'll say things like we talked about last week. I'll say, you know, you always do this. You never do this. And it causes such drama and such bitterness. And that's me no longer speaking truthfully, no longer speaking in Christ. Rather, Jesus in me, though, is saying, my son, my daughter, just give them, give them truth. Give them, give them me. Give them mercy. Give them grace. So here's a few ways. I want to give you four M's really quick. Four things to check. So if you struggle with this, and this is some of you in the room, uh, and sometimes it's me. I think all of us maybe on some occasion struggle to be honest. Maybe it's because we struggle to be honest with ourselves about certain issues, but Here's four M's to try to be more truthful in a conflict. Number one, check your motive. What is it? Is it, if it, is it anything other than love? Then it's going to be less than or way less than best. As we talked about last week, Ephesians 4.15 says, rather speaking the truth in love. My motivation in this conflict is loving. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that's pretty easy when it comes to my spouse or my children, but what about my boss? Well, it doesn't seem like the Bible gives us an out here. In fact, this particular clause isn't even necessarily about family. We're using it that way because we're God's family. But really, he's talking about people interacting in the body of Christ. Some of these people could work together. This could be employee-employer. It doesn't matter. The love, the, the, the way that we speak should be in love. Our motivation then is, I want what's best for you. I want what's best for our relationship. And truth is going to do that. Motive is love. The second M is message. Is it honest? Is it honest? Do I rightly name the offense and how I, how I feel about it? Rather than constantly pointing and constantly saying, you did this and always and, and never. No, instead I say, you know, that made me feel this way. And this is what I think happened. Sometimes we just totally miscommunicate on the offense. I think this happens with me and my kids all the time. I don't... I'll be honest with you, I don't really understand girls. Yeah. I just don't get them. They don't make sense. I've got a big one at home. I've lived with her 17 years plus. I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Almost 17 years. Not quite the plus yet. We're getting there. But she changes up. I swear women do this. They just change their operation just to keep us guessing. And what's funny is I've heard women tell me that men are difficult to understand. I, I say false. Just, it's just really simple. We just need to eat and we need, we need every once in a while, you know, some other things in marriage and you fill in the blanks. And that's really about it. I mean, I don't even really need to communicate very much. I mean, I'm, I would say I'm about as simple as all get out. But women, but I've got three little girls at the house and that's where so often the misunderstanding, they'll come in the room crying and I can't understand and they can barely spit, spit out what it is that caused their tears and when they finally get it out, I'm like, I don't even understand why you're upset about that. Like, I don't, I don't even get it. Like, I, I walk through and, and I'll bump my foot on, on, on the couch and I'll yank my pinky toe, you know where you hook your pinky toe and it goes the wrong way and you're like, Aah! but they come to me like I need to solve this. I'm like, well, you know, you should watch where you walk. I mean, what? I don't know what to tell you about that. You know, life happens. There's things to bump into in life. Maybe I'm the problem. 
But there are, people can be hard to understand. So is my message honest? Am I rightly naming? Am I understanding? Am I asking questions saying, is this why you are upset? It's very important. The next is the moment. The Bible here says in, in verse 26, it says, before the sun goes down, before the sun goes down on your anger there in verse 26. I used to take this very literally. Y'all have heard me say this before, but it, I, I, if we had a fight, me and Nicole, I would literally make us stay up all night until we solved it. And there were some three o'clocks, I kid you not. There were some three a.m.s where I think she just gave up and it really wasn't a good solution. But I was taking this verse very literally. I, I, I don't think that's his intent, however. I think his intent is quickness, though. It shouldn't be something that sets for a while. I've noticed that some people just need a little bit of space just to whew, just calm down a bit. I'm not really that way. I'm pretty even keel. Even when I'm super passionate, super upset about it, I'm probably not going to take it to another DEFCON, if you will. Nicole, however, wham! I mean, it's really the volume is shifting quick. So sometimes she just needs a little bit of time just to bring it down a little bit. I got to give her some room. I used to screw that up real bad. I thought we got to solve it right now. No, we do need to solve it quickly. We shouldn't let it set for a while. You've got friends, you've got family, you've got perhaps parents. There's people in your life that an offense has sat there for a long time and you got to admit to yourself, you haven't gotten better, you've gotten bitter. And that's most common. Because at some point we have to name the offense and quicker is better. Things just get worse over time. They don't get better without work. Here's your fourth the method. Is it gentle? Boy, that one really just stabs me. Because Proverbs 15, I, I love how, how the writer here puts it. He says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We create such havoc in our lives just by saying things harshly. We could avoid so many conflicts if we would just calm down a bit and say it in a way that's gentle. Now, I bet every one of you is aware of the food dilemma. All right, the food dilemma. The food dilemma goes like this. You as a husband or even as a father, you ask, I've noticed though it's common, you ask your wife, what do you want? And she says, whatever you want. All right, we know this food dilemma. It's not true, it's a lie. All right, when they say whatever you want, false. It's always false, it's 100% false. Because then as soon as I say, okay, well, uh, I always want convenience. And so... I'm looking for whatever's closest to my house. And there's like three or four restaurants that are the closest. All right, how about Taco Bell? Nope. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm starting to get it. Sonic, no. McDonald's, no. Hardee's? I don't even want Hardee's, but we'll throw that in there. Huh? Nope, nope. Okay, so what do you want? Whatever you want. Like, we understand the food dilemma. It's, it's silly. And it, it sometimes can create a real fight, which is really sad, but sometimes it does. I made a whole list of all the restaurants in town if you want it. I'll literally go down this list. A, alphabetical, A through Z, you want this, you want this, you want this, you want this. That list blows her up big time. I mean, it's great. But sometimes you'll ask your spouse, you'll ask your kids, you'll ask a loved one, what's wrong? And they'll say nothing. But you know, you can feel it. This can happen either way. This can happen in any relationship. You know, what's wrong? You. They don't want to say it, but, but you're what's... I'm mad at you. Nothing. If that's your habit at home, know that you're not handling conflict truthfully. 
You're not handling it truthfully. You're being dishonest every time you do that. And I know why you do it. It's because you want this person. This person should already know. You should already know why I'm mad. But if you don't, you got to bend over backwards to figure it out. That's not truithful. That well, guess what you've accomplished? You've extended the fight, unnecessary extension, rather than saying, "You know what's wrong?" For the thousandth time, you did not take your laundry out of the floor. I mean, it can be basic stuff like that. Oh my goodness, why'd you put the toilet paper on that way again? And you've been mad at me all day about that. Sometimes it's a lot more major. I'm joking about the small details. Friends, if you're upset, quick should be your message. Quick. Don't let the sun go down. Don't extend the fight unnecessarily. You know what one of the best medicines is? Y'all aren't ready for this. And I'll tell you, this one is a heartbreaker for me. I don't do it nearly enough and I know better. The best medicine to handle a conflict truthfully is pray together. Prayer does a crazy thing to you. You really can't lie to God. You just feel sacrilegious if you do it. And so as soon as you start praying with somebody else, all of a sudden you start open up. And you go, I'm, I'm mad about this, this, and this. And now this person gets to hear me in prayer. Prayer with your spouse, there's no more powerful medicine. That, that doesn't exist. You want to know how to save any marriage? Prayer. Together. I swear it'll fix almost all your problems. And it might sound like some kind of mysterious, magical saw, but it's not. It's just true. It's just true. Families who pray together stay together. Certainly marriages stay together that pray together. Because you've got to be honest in those moments. First Peter, Peter writes this, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So if you're in a spat with somebody, your very prayers could be hindered, especially with your spouse. That's so true. Suddenly I can't even talk to God even when you're not around. Because I know I'm wrong. Handle your conflict truthfully. Here's the second. Address anger controllably. This is Somebody needs this today. Because I tell you, this is like so many people's natural bent. I won't show any other emotion but anger. Anger I'm good with. Especially men, but I, I think this can go either way. Address anger controllably. This is really strange. And I've said this before, and every time I read it again, it's like shocking when I read verse 26 and it says, be angry and do not sin. It literally is another passive imperative that says, let the anger out without sin. Be angry. That means, okay, let's run that down for a minute. That means the Holy Spirit of God is angry in me. And I don't sin in that. Okay, so that changes the type, does it not? It changes the type of anger. It means it has to be righteous anger. If it's Christ Jesus in me, if it's a passive command, a passive imperative, then the angry comes from the Holy Spirit of God in me. That means this kind of anger is not what you initially think. Everyone gets angry. Everyone. Anger, in fact, is a God-given response. So anybody who says, you know, anger is a sin, that's not true. In fact, it would be very problematic since we know Jesus gets angry in at least one piece of Scripture. I would say more than one. He says some things to the Pharisees that don't sound exactly nice. He calls them whitewashed tombs and broods of vipers. He's calling them a bunch of snakes. He comes into the temple and drives the people out because he's upset. 
that they're selling goods in the Lord's house. He's mad. That means there's a type of anger that's righteous. And this anger that Paul is mentioning is that type. That Christ Jesus gets angry about certain things. And our natural bent is to take that to the point, yes, we felt offended, yes, we felt mistreated, disrespected, something like that. Usually, that drives us to sinfulness. And yet, that's not the occurrence here. God gets angry without sinning. He's slow to anger, in fact. His anger is always under control. This is the type of anger that we should be exhibiting, as Paul puts it. Exodus 34 It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. James writes in chapter 1, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Here's just a a give me. Here's a a quick toss up. If you are quick to anger, you're not in the right. Your, your fuse should be long. The excuse that you will often give me or those that you love is, you know, I've just got a quick temper. I know, we're all sinful. That would be my response. You know, we all struggle with different sins. Some, some I struggle with different than you. But a quick temper is no excuse. Oh, I come from a generation after generation of quick temper. So generational sin, okay. So you've observed wrong behavior for a long time. It's not an excuse. It's actually good, though, to know that about yourself. Because God in you is slow to anger. Christ Jesus in you is slow to anger. And He's angry only about certain things. He's not angry about everything. Don't let the sun go down on this. So it's slow to anger, but it's quick to control and address it. There's an old country song that uh, some of you might be familiar with. It's called, I Just Want to Be Mad. Uh, She sings this. Terry Clark is the artist. She said, Last night we went to bed not talking because we already said too much. I faced the wall, you faced the window, bound and determined not to touch. A lot of us, if you've been married for like, I don't know, a month, you've probably done that. I'm still mad at you this morning. Coffee's ready if you want some. I'm going to leave for work without a goodbye kiss. But as I'm driving off, just remember this. I'll never leave. I'll never stray. My love for you will never change. But I ain't ready to make up. We'll get around to that. I think I'm right. I think you're wrong. I'll probably give in before long. Please don't make me smile. I just want to be mad for a while. If I sang it, you probably remember it. But y'all don't want that. This isn't a female key. I don't know about that. But I've done so many of those things, sadly enough, those, those, those nights where you make sure you don't look at each other, like you, you stay on your side of the bed. Those, those days where you leave the house and normally your habit is, bye honey, I'll see you later, kiss on the cheek, whatever, you just scratch all of that because this person needs to know you're still mad. You didn't give up on your anger yet. Because you know when you give up on your anger, you've really conceded to the fight, right? And yet that's not Christ. You know what he has a right to? A just wrath. That for some reason he's slow to give. In fact, there's other passages of Scripture that talk about how he is, he is waiting to give wrath. That, that, that creation is, is eagerly waiting on him to return and yet he is patient and long-suffering 
that God's mercy for us for no reason other than that He is loving and wonderful and perfect. His mercy for us is long and His anger is slow. Some of you need to go home today and concede the argument by just turning off the anger because your anger isn't from Jesus. You can actually have a fair fight. (laughs) You can actually have a good conflict if you'll do unlike her and say, please don't make me smile. I just want to be mad for a while. This really blows my wife up. I can be a bit of a comedian. I really like to make people laugh. And if I can get a smile, she's lost the fight, right? But that's all bad. Handle anger controllably. Let it go. Otherwise, what will happen is verse 27, you give an opportunity for the devil. I've heard this recently, uh, or not recently, but I've heard this for, for some time now. This idea of opportunity to the devil is, the NIV puts it this way, do not give the devil a foothold. This is the idea that the devil's always kind of crouching at your door, waiting to get in. He's looking for an opportunity. Just If you give him just a little, you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. That's kind of the nature of what he's up to. He's like a door-to-door salesman that'll just throw mud in your house so he can come in and vacuum it. You know, that's that kind of salesman. And I've heard it said this way, you go to bed mad with two in the bed and you wake up with three. And the third party you didn't want in there. And he don't go anywhere until you finally let down your anger and say, all right, let's handle this. Like grown-ups. <laughs> Adults are supposed to be better than this. It's so funny how we can go from one room parenting this kid and saying, your anger is out of control and I can't communicate with you because you're just ridiculous. And then we go in our other room and go, mm, I'm never letting go of my anger. It's so funny. And we do this. Control your anger. Proverbs 14 says, those who control their anger have great understanding. Those with a hasty temper will make many mistakes. Who? Those who have a hasty temper. Where does uncontrolled anger lead? Well, Paul gives us a few of those. Bitterness, clamor, all these things. Mistakes, resentment, quarrels. You know, people kill each other over stuff like this. It all started with anger. It started with anger. James chapter 4 says, What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, it's a similar word to the anger we've been talking about, are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. This is literally like the first main uh, exhibition of sin that we see in the Bible is uncontrolled anger. It happens in chapter 4 of the book. You don't even have to get four chapters in before you go, well, look what anger can do. Cain and Abel, they both offer the Lord sacrifice as is part of their habit, as God is trying to instruct them with this relational kind of faith and, and conversation that God has always wanted from us. And He wants our best. It's always been true. It hasn't changed. And Cain brings him mediocre product. Abel brings him his very best. And God says, I approve of this. I don't approve of this. And rather than Cain hearing God say, I want your best, he just just sees Abel and go, well, I can't stand you. It's wild how quickly the tables turn too. In one, in just a few chapters into the Word of God, Cain kills Abel out of uncontrolled anger. God says to him, He says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you just do what is right, will you not be accepted? Absolutely. But if you don't do what is right, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. 
And he did not. Ask Christ, my friends, to give you self-control. Anger is not something to be proud of. There is a type of anger that is necessary. It's, it, it's a piece of having a conflict that, that is passionate, but handle it quickly. Handle it righteously and with grace. Here's the third. I'm going to move through this one rather quickly because we really kind of talked about this last week. The third instruction is to communicate gracefully. You can go back and listen to last week's sermon to really dig in, I guess, more heavily there. But an aspect of communicating with grace that I wanted to get at just in this text is the idea of verses 28 through 29 where he says some things that sound out of place. He says, let the thief no longer steal, let him labor, let him have something to share. That whole verse is like, where did that come from in the mix? Now, contextually, you need to understand that this is a different society where uh, things are much more uh, from from field, from from farm to to, to mouth. You know, there's a whole lot higher chance of starvation, a whole lot higher chance uh, of you really being in a state of poverty like most of us Americans have never experienced. And so this this is actually talking about stealing and that even a Christian may have a habit of it because they're starving. Or because they're lazy. Really, that's what he's talking about here. Is this type of thief, this klepto is how the Greek is here. This klepto is no longer laboring. He is an able-bodied person. He says, replace your klepto self with a hardworking self. Now that's true. Deal with that. If you're a thief, there you go. I mean, that should be obvious. I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit of God in you is, is reminding you not to do that. Stop giving into that. But let's talk about this from a relational component because a lot of times we are stealing when it comes to relationships. This is why he goes on in verse 29 to talk about no corrupting talk. This is the idea of a fruit or a meat that's gone bad. That's the kind of stuff you're spitting out is the kind of stuff that we normally throw in the garbage because it's starting to attract flies. That kind of corrupting talk. Instead be useful and good, good for building up, edifying the house, fits all occasions, giving grace. These are the words he puts in 29. So sometimes we really steal from a relationship. We don't labor in it. This is almost always the case um, at some point in a marriage when it, when it gets to that point where they finally come to me. And I've been saying this a few weeks. You know, if, if your marriage is really starting to fall apart, come to me early in the problem, not in the Jonathan needs a miracle moment because... Maybe God will give us a miracle, but what often begins to happen is one party is given 100%, 90%, and the other party is decreasing it much more rapidly. And we have this view of marriage like 50-50, right? It's a very common thing to hear from people like, we're both, it's a 100% marriage and we're putting, we're 50-50, right? It's a compromise, it's an even split, but that's not biblical, it's actually 100-100. 100-100%. In a way, a a biblical marriage is 300%. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. God will always uphold His part. He's given 100 every time. And we come to the table with each of our 100s. And when we begin to steal from that, when we begin to say, you know, I'm just too tired. You know, I've worked all day. And you see this a lot. I've worked all day and as soon as I get home, the last thing I want you to do is hand me a bunch of kids. And, we, and we, we forget the part where he or she has been at home all day handling this, this chaos and they just want a break. And 
So now neither one of us wants to give a hundred. This is so common. Or there's, there's a fight. And there's one of you that's ready and passionate and wanting to have it now. And the other one just wants to avoid it for days and weeks. And stealing from the relationship. And he goes on to say, let no corrupting talk. Now you would think that's obvious, but often that gets us in the greatest harm in any conflict is that we begin to spew things that aren't useful. Bringing up past harm. Bringing up things that we've been thinking for a while that are neither good, sweet, gracious, none of those things. Rather, they're like rotten fruit. And that's the stuff we spew. Rather, rather than communicating with grace and thinking, <laughs> like we spoke last week, this, there's this verse and. In the Proverbs, it talks about how a, a woman builds up her house with her hands, but with her same hands, she tears it down. I think that, that verse could be used for man or woman, for, for people in general, that with our voices, we can do one of two things. We can build others up, we can make relationship better, or we can tear them down. There's, there's not a lot of gray there. So we have a choice. Like, what's my motive? Is it love? What's my message? Is it honest? Am, am I serious about making this relationship better? Or do I just want to vent and be lazy? I know, I get it. In the moment, it's hard to really think rationally, right? And yet, anger under control by, under the power of Christ Jesus. Now, when we're quiet, we steal from a relationship. When we, we put corrupt talk out, we make things worse. It's like we all have a, a bank account together in these relationships, in these many relationships, husband, wife, kids, parents, relationships at work. There are all these bank accounts. And when we're quiet, we begin to make withdrawals. Mentally, we start making withdrawals. We're holding something back. I've been mad at this person for a while and I'm not doing anything. I'm making withdrawals from the bank until finally, I simply cannot let it go anymore. And my bank account has been overdrafted at this point. In a relationship, it's this way. You, you, you spit corrupting talk. You make things worse. All of a sudden, you're making withdrawals. We understand this with banks. It's not all that confusing. When we get an overdraft, eventually they start tacking on interest. Things just get worse. Eventually, they close the account. And that's what happens in your life. Withdrawals, withdrawals, withdrawals. At some point, you've got to make a deposit of grace, of love, of honest communication. All right, here's the last... The last instruction. Pursue unity forgivingly. I'm convinced of one thing. And you might say to yourself, you know, you could have wasted less time by just simply starting here. Um, but I thought all that other stuff might be helpful to you by the power of Christ in you. And the thing that if we could honestly do it, if we would really allow the Spirit of God in us to forgive like Christ forgives, it would, it would handle so much of our... Conflict. I would argue it probably would handle 100% of it. If we had the forgiveness of Christ, what a difference that would make. This is how he concludes his letter, or his chapter here to the Ephesians. He concludes with this concept of not grieving the Holy Spirit. That's how all of this starts to make sense. Because it's the Spirit of God in us that doesn't, put, that doesn't release falsehood. It's the Spirit of God in us that has a righteous anger. It's the Spirit of God in us that communicates with grace. And so at the end of all of this, if we're not doing those things, we're not putting out falsehood, we're angry 
and, and we're sinful in it and we're uncontrolled, then it does this thing in verse 30. It grieves the Holy Spirit of God within us. This causes two things to happen into you. Like you start feeling like you're really screwing up and you start feeling like you're really distant from God. And it's because you're not, you're not leaning into Him. You're not allowing Him to be a part of what, <laughs> certainly not a part of a relational conflict, but so much begins to fall and unravel and you're grieving the Holy Spirit. In which that same thing, it says you've been sealed to the day of redemption. So instead of all that, Put away, again, another imperative. Christ in you is pushing these things away. That voice in you that tells you, you know, I shouldn't be so bitter about all this. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have this wrath. Bitterness is this idea of almost poison here in the text. That Why is it that I want to poison every relationship I'm in? Why is it that I just really want to hurt this person? That's not Jesus in me. Why is this wrath, this is an acute anger, a hothead who has no self-control, who just starts destroying things in the house. It's really wild when your fights get to that point. You start breaking your dishes and things and you regret that later. You're like, my grandma gave me that. What was I thinking? That's wrath. Anger, clamor. Clamor is just distraction, just constant noise and slander. The word there is blasphemia, which is lying about others, telling injurious kind of speech, slandering others, and, t- and telling other people that you know they're this way and it's not true. And then malice. Malice is best described as getting to that point where you just have an ill will towards others. This fight has gotten to the point now where I want harm to come to you. There's people like that maybe in your life right now. Like you... you you're at that point now with them where you want, you want something bad to occur to them. That's the natural bent of human. It's like, you make me mad long enough, I hope you get what's coming. That's, that's, how, we're, that's how we're bent. But Christ Jesus in us is pushing those things out. We have to relinquish that. That's really the activity of putting, let this stuff be put away. It's like, I want to I wanna hang on to that so bad. Jonathan, you don't know this person. You don't know what my dad did to me when I was growing up. If I let go of that malice, you just don't know. I can't forgive them of that. And yet, you, there's that tension you feel because something is yanking on it. In Christ Jesus, something is yanking and saying, you need to let it go. It's the Holy Spirit of God in you. Here's your move. Your move is not... All right, I'm going to let that... Your move is just simply... Okay, that's your move. And I know that's hard. There's some really messed up relationships in your life. Most of us have stuff like that. And Christ in me is just... Okay, fine, I'll forgive. Okay, fine, I'll let that go. I can't help but think about the Savior Himself when I think about this. And that... Man's sin, our brokenness, God's just wrath for us. He could have done this and he, he would have had every right to do it. He would have had every right to do it. And yet what did he do? He let it go. And more than that, he paid for it. Far more than... Because letting it go would be one thing. Forgetting, no, he did more than forget. He forgave. And we can, by the power of Christ... As God in Christ Jesus forgave you, okay, let it. Fine. 
I should still be angry with my brother. I should still be angry with my spouse. I should still be angry with my ex. You wouldn't believe what they did. I should still be angry at my parents, at my at that that child that just wrecked my life and ran away from my house and now I can't be happy. And that boss who just ruined my day <laughs> again and again. I want the worst to come to them. No, the Spirit of God says, uh-uh. That don't Instead, put on another, that God, that this thing in me is instead searching to be kind to one another, to be tender-hearted, quick to forgive one another, tender-hearted, sympathetic, gentle, compassionate. This is life-changing. Because the crazy part that we don't often understand is how much this is affecting us. How holding on to all of this wrath and clamor and all this malice that we think it's helping us and it's killing us. And yet Christ says, let it go. Instead, put on a tender heart. Forgiveness. Reminding yourself that I was forgiven much. If somehow we can get that into our heads and understand how much Christ forgave us. Then this stuff, honestly, I don't care how bad it is, it's petty compared to that. It just is. It just is. Because we are murderers, adulterers. We are the worst. And yet God said, I forgive you. We're able to forgive because Christ is unlimited in His forgiveness. This is what Jesus is doing in you. So let it go. Forgive, forgive. Colossians 3 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So what does this look like? Well, if you're the offender, here's what, here's what, this is this simple. Two phrases, and I know it's hard. Some of you don't, some of you just flat out weren't raised right, all right? And that's how it is. But you've never learned how to ask for forgiveness. It's simple. I was wrong. I am sorry. That first part's going to kill a few of you. I was wrong. I am sorry. Be willing to repent. Be willing to ask for forgiveness. This was how I was raised. You couldn't get out of a conflict without... And my parents added an additional one just to mess with us. I swear they did it. We had to say these very kind of words. And we had to be specific I was wrong. I'm sorry for breaking your toy. I'm sorry for elbowing you when I went by. Because I don't know what it is about siblings. When you walk by them, you just want to, mm, just, I don't know. what Your kids are doing this, whether you see it or not. I don't know what's wrong with kids. I was this way too. Every time I saw my, my brother, I was like, <laughs> I just want to trip you. Man, that's just children. I don't know. They're sinful. They're messed up. And so are we. We're just, this, this is the way we are. And so I'd have to say, okay, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I'm sorry for tripping you. I had to be specific. And I had to hug. <laughs> I hated that part. And if it was my sister, I had to kiss her on the cheek. Like, you, you don't realize how mad I am at this person? That's what my parents ingrained in me. Right or wrong, I don't have a trouble saying, you know what, I screwed up. Parents, this, I mean, this isn't a parenting one, but just know this. Teach your kids how to apologize. It's huge. It will save them some grief. I was wrong. I'm sorry. And I'm specific about it. And then sometimes we're on the other side where we need to grant forgiveness. And there's a couple of things you need to understand about this. It's not pretending it didn't happen. In fact, that's not the way Christ forgive. 
He didn't, he didn't pretend it didn't happen. In fact, he knew very well what our sin was and died for us anyway. It wasn't some sort of repression where God says, I'm just going to forget it. No, he remembered it and did sacrifice for that very reason. So that's not what our forgiveness looks like either. I forgive you does not mean I have somehow forgotten it. Because some offenses are hard to forget. But it doesn't mean you can't forgive them like Christ forgave us. It also isn't conditional though. It isn't based on some criteria. The forgiveness of Christ is unconditional. I'll forgive you if you do these things. No. Forgiveness, by the way, is not impossible. And it's not an automatic cure for the hurt. Sometimes this is, this is the thing I struggle with, where like I come and I say I'm sorry, I say I was wrong, and I'm wrong sometimes. And I expect our relationship to mend faster. Just depends on the level of my wrongdoing. I find my kids are pretty daggone forgiving. You know I do this as a parent? You know I screw up sometimes as a parent. You know what's baffling to a child? To come into their room and say, you know, son, I was wrong about that. I'm sorry I said that to you. That was, that was mean. Sometimes I say things that aren't gracious with my children. They forgive way faster. <laughs> In fact, they're almost shocked. They're like, wait a minute, you're apologizing? I'm so confused. And I mess up sometimes. Granting forgiveness is these things. It's obedience, first of all. If you're sitting here saying to yourself, well, I just won't, I just can't. Well, that's you hanging on and it's you disobeying the commands of Christ Jesus. There are several places I can go and I talked about this last week, but Jesus was asked, how many times should we forgive? Seven. And Jesus said 77 times seven. And that's the idea of many numbers of completion multiplied together. In fact, really what he's saying is like you never run out of this. He uses all these digits that he often uses as numbers of completions and multiplies them together. So he says his forgiveness is endless. How many times should we forgive? How many things has Christ Jesus forgiven you for? I don't know. Do you want to start adding that up? Because I don't. I, I don't. I'm, I'm going to mess up. I'll probably think a thought that was a little off base today. I really don't want to, but it might happen. He had to forgive me for that too. He had to die on the cross for that garbage too. I don't want to keep an account of that. I know it's endless and it's unconditional. So in my obedience, I forgive others as He forgave me. It's an action that's got to be expressed in word and deed. Here's the other part of the story. We don't just say, I was wrong, I'm sorry. We also have the responsibility of saying, I forgive you. I forgive you. I release you from your offense. I forgive. And I begin to act different over time. A choice here to set this offender free of their debt. I'm so thankful that that was Christ in me. I want to end with this image here. And you've seen this before, some of you. This is, this is the way that some of your houses look today. And the, the way that it occurred was one brick at a time. Y'all didn't, we didn't have some big conflict that created a whole wall. No, we had a bunch of conflicts that created a wall. Do you know how you get rid of this? Sledgehammer don't work. Bulldozer don't work. They don't exist. There's no such thing as a conflict destroyer. No, there's the same way you put it up is the same way you get rid of it. So you begin to take the brick off the wall. You look at each other in the eye and you say, what is this brick called? That brick is called, uh, um, I don't know. It could be something really bad. It could be, this brick is called infidelity. Maybe it's a boulder. 
I agree. I screwed up huge. And you name that together and you say, okay, I'm sorry. I did this. Do you forgive me? I forgive you. So together you take the boulder and you throw it out of the door. Until eventually, right now you can't even see each other. You've forgotten why you love each other. You can't even remember what was so great about this person. Why am I still with them? Because the brick wall is so high, you can't even see them anymore. But you start naming them one at a time. Eventually you get down here like, oh, you know what? You're still pretty hot. I kind of dig you. All right. Let's get rid of that. Let's get rid of that. Y'all okay with your pastor saying that, you know? Don't, y'all can't lie to me. Y'all, y'all didn't get together because you thought each other were ugly. You were like, oh, I'm, I'm attracted. That's how it works. And you start naming this. And you get the bricks out of the house and eventually you can see each other again. But it creates forgiveness after forgiveness after forgiveness. That is going to be the nature of every relationship in your life. So if you've decided to yourself, you know, I'm just an unforgiving person. Doesn't work like that. And Christ has forgiven you much. So we should forgive as well. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're thankful, first of all, for your outstanding grace. Your perfect forgiveness. This whole thing hinges around the forgiveness of Christ. How amazing. How amazing. And what a call. Because when I think about that forgiveness right now, God, I am baffled by it. I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in knowing full well just how messed up I am. There's stuff I'm not super proud of. There's stuff I've done in my past. There's stuff I've thought. There's some things I needed some serious forgiveness for, and yet in Christ Jesus, you did it. You forgave so much. And that's what my forgiveness, what my conflict resolution hinges around. I'm so thankful, God, that I'm not alone in this. That you didn't call me to do all these things by my power. You know full well I cannot do it. But by the power of the Holy Spirit within me, I can. I'm praying for myself. I'm praying for your church, Lord. Let us be the kind of people who put out falsehood. Put it out of our lives. That we, we speak the truth with love. But we speak the truth every time we're honest. We don't steal from the relationship. We're the kind of people that when we express anger, it's your kind of anger. An anger towards unrighteousness, an anger towards sin, an an anger towards brokenness. Those are the things that make you mad. That we would have that kind of anger and it wouldn't drive us towards sinfulness. That we would put out, in fact, all of this awful stuff, bitterness, wrath, those things. God, would you do this today? There's some people in this room that are really clinging to unforgiveness. And the reason is, there's some really, really bad hurt in their life. This person really destroyed them. And they're hanging on for dear life for that wrath and that bitterness and that malice. They know full well they want the worst to happen to this person. And by the world's standards, they have every right to it. But by your standards, God, something greatly changes because you forgave us unconditionally no matter our wrongdoing. Your sacrifice was big enough for it all. God, I pray you would affect our hearts in that. Help us to put away that hurt. Help us to find forgiveness in you. We would begin to forgive others quickly. Slow to anger. Do that in us, Lord. We love you. We ask now that you would guide our lives. 
guide our steps. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.